I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We'll read beginning from verse 6 through verse 12. I marvel, or wonder, or am astonished, that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men, or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ." But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Galatian church received the gospel directly from Paul. It's in Acts 16, uh, one of his missionary journeys when he goes to Phrygia in the region of Galatia and preaches the gospel throughout the region. Almost immediately, and this was approximately A.D. 50, uh, when Paul had been to Galatia, almost immediately he received a report that the Galatian church was plagued by serious doctrinal error, that they had literally turned away to another gospel. Uh, The evidence suggests that this letter was written in the very same year that Paul had first visited Galatia to preach. So the amount of time that had elapsed uh, was incredibly small from Paul's entry and his preaching of the gospel to their departure from the gospel. And though the apostolic church was filled with problems, uh, just a cursory reading of, of Acts, a cursory reading of the epistles will tell you that the apostolic period was not some kind of glorious period of perfection in which everything worked just so and, and, and because there were apostles and because they were so close to the time of Christ that everything was just perfect, unlike now. Uh, it wasn't that way at all. But even granting that, Paul himself seems to be astonished at how rapidly the Galatian church abandoned the gospel. I mean, it must have been perhaps even a matter of months from the time in which they'd had the personal presence and instruction of Paul uh, to the time in which they had turned away. Now, how does Paul respond to this situation? Does he advocate a toleration for this dynamic, exciting, new view of the gospel uh, that, that, had, that the Galatians had discovered, does he say, you know, we just need to accept each other just the way we are. It's okay. If, you know, I have my view of the gospel. You have your view of the gospel. It's really not a big deal. Just, just accept each other. Does he say, as was said to me personally uh, by a... Uh, Uh, a person from the United Methodist Church, I can affirm, I can affirm your your beliefs. Is that what Paul says to the Galatians? I can affirm that for you. Does he say, well, we're all Christians after all. I mean, what's really important is that we all love Jesus. All of us together love Jesus because after, after all, doctrine divides. Let's not talk about that. Let's let's just get in the spirit. Well, not exactly, does he? In fact, what he does is he writes them a letter in which a very aggressive letter, by the way, if you can't already tell, in which in these verses that I've just read, he makes three absolutely crucial points. And the reason that we're going to this text this evening is because this is if you will, a kind of application of what we've considered in the last three messages. We've considered the, uh, the gospel message, what it is, what specifically it is. We've considered uh, the nature of saving faith, 
And then we've considered this morning uh, Christ's message about the cost of being his disciple. All of which are cornerstones in the New Testament proclamation of the gospel. Cornerstones in New Testament religion. So the reason I want to go here is because I want to see how the New Testament, how the apostles themselves handled aberration. How they handled departure from that message that we've considered over the last three sermons. And what Paul says is three crucial points. First of all, in verse 6, He says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. He says that turning from the true gospel, turning from the gospel the way that Paul delivered it, is the same as turning away from Jesus Christ. Now, on the surface of that, if Paul were just a man, I mean... He is just a man. But I mean, if Paul were were not an apostle, that would be an astonishingly proud statement, wouldn't it? Well, you mean, you're not following after what I told you? Well, you're not following God. I mean, that, that seems like the height of boastfulness. But we have to remember what Paul says in verses 11 and 12. Because this, this is what is the foundation of his statement. He says, Brethren, the gospel which I preached is not from man. I didn't receive it from man. I I wasn't taught it by man. I received it by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Paul's gospel isn't Paul's. It's God's gospel. And in that respect... If you turn away from God's gospel, you're turning away from God. Now, why is that? Well, going back to some things we covered in the very first message, we remember that the gospel is a message about Jesus Christ. And if we change the message, if we alter the message, if we twist here and tweak there and and drop this out and put this in, then we're revealing a different Jesus Christ. Because the message of the gospel is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we reveal a different Christ, then those who hear that message and those who follow that message are believing on and following a different Jesus Christ. And it's not that Jesus Christ that has the power and the promises of the one in this book. So if we turn to a different gospel message, Paul says we turn to a different God. We turn to a different Savior. We turn to a different salvation. And the problem is, at the end of the day, there isn't another Jesus. There isn't another salvation. That's what he means when he says, uh, I'm so surprised that you're, you're, you're removed from him that called you unto another gospel, which is not another. I mean, that seems like a strange thing to say. When you, well, if it's another gospel, how can it not be another? What he means is there is no other gospel. It seems like another gospel, but there really is no such thing. And so, already... Already we see the seriousness with which Paul approaches this issue. It's not a matter for theological debate, for for people to sit around drinking coffee and discussing what the gospel might be and what it might not be. It is a matter of eternal salvation. Now, in some respects, we might think this is surprising for Paul to approach the matter this way. Because after all, there was tremendous religious confusion in Paul's time. I mean, we think 
we think of the New Testament time as being this time when you know, there were the apostles and they came out and, and they, the gospel was pure and they preached it and everybody was on the same page and there was this unity and we're all going down the same road and maybe it was like 300 years later that things got messed up, right? But just like today, and that's the important part, just like today, there were a multitude of messages claiming to be the gospel. Just consider. There was the message that the Orthodox Jews embraced, the Jews of the time that denied that Jesus was the Christ. They had a gospel of sorts. They still believed that the Messiah was coming. There's no question about it. They still do today. They just deny that Jesus was the one. Of course, the New Testament has a problem with that. It says, Who is a liar? Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. That's 1 John 2. So that was one gospel floating around, a rather popular one in Judea. Then there was the gospel that denied the humanity of Christ. Now this was an interesting one. Jesus was, he wasn't a real man. He was, he was a, uh, he was kind of a, an angel or a spirit being, or maybe he really was God, but he didn't take human flesh. It's what we would call today a Gnostic gospel, because obviously if there's no humanity of Christ, there's no atonement. And so what they taught was that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, he just pretended to die. He fooled everybody. Surprise! And so the real key to salvation wasn't believing on an atoning Savior. The real key was a, a path of mystical enlightenment. This is what the book of Colossians is all about. Many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist, Second John 1. Of course there were those who, as today, denied the divinity of Christ. They had their version of the gospel. Well, well Jesus wasn't, a, Jesus wasn't a, 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 a God. He was the greatest of all created beings. He, or, or He was a great man. Uh, you, you can hear this today in every liberal pulpit throughout the whole country. You can hear it in the, the New Age version of the gospel. And it was there in New Testament times. And then there was another popular one. And this was the one that denied salvation by faith alone. And that's what we have in, in, in Galatians. It starts in Acts 15. It says, There rose up a certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. You see, see you, couldn't, you couldn't become a, a Christian. You couldn't be saved just by faith alone. You had to become a Jew and keep the ceremonial law. We just add works to faith. Paul says, For as much as we have heard that certain who went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. And of course, again, an extremely popular gospel in the regions of Judea amongst the Jews. There was a whole sect uh, in fact, that's what eventually happened to the Jerusalem church after the dispersion. After, after A.D. 70, when the Romans came in, there was a sect called the Ebionites uh, that you'll read about in, in early church history. And that's what became of this view. And they, uh, they, in theory, died out. The only problem is it sprang back up in Roman Catholicism. Because that is, in fact, the Roman Catholic gospel. Well, faith is good, but works plus faith is the best. Because that's what you really need to be saved. So that was one that was floating around. There were those that denied the resurrection of Christ in Corinth. Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how is it that some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? 1 Corinthians 15. They just, there was no resurrection. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You can imagine what that does to the gospel. Then there were those who said, well, there was a resurrection. And in fact, uh, in fact the, the, the last resurrection, it, but it had already happened. The second Timothy. He says, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase into more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, 
saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. There were those that denied progressive sanctification who in effect said, let us continue in sin that grace may abound. They're talked about in the book of Jude at length in Second Peter. So, the, the, the whole New Testament, I mean, just this little piece of land, uh, small section, Roman uh, inner part of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor, was spinning with all of this variety of religious views on what the gospel was. But in spite of that, in spite of this host of views, in spite of the ease with which a person might reasonably become confused, because all of these people would use the Scripture to teach what they were saying, they would allege what they were saying out of the Scripture. In spite of all of that, Paul doesn't spare any quarter. He says, if you turn away from the Gospel that I delivered to you, you turn away from Jesus Christ. That's the first thing he says. Second thing he says is in verse 7. He says, there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Altering the gospel is obviously not an acceptable thing to do. What he calls it is perverting the gospel of Christ. See, we don't each get to have our take on the gospel. We don't each get to have our kind of individual idea of what the gospel is. Changing it is not an option. It's, the gospel is not a multiple choice question where all the answers are right. To alter the gospel is to pervert it. And this is a very strong word. Uh, it means to take something and make it into its total opposite. It's the same word that is used uh, when it says the moon was turned into blood or laughter was turned into grief in a couple of other places in the scriptures. When you alter the gospel, when you change the gospel, by definition, you create something diametrically opposed to the truth. Because there's no margin for error. Now, obviously, the gospel also is not to be fashioned according to the listeners. Twisted and adjusted so that we make sure that the people who are hearing it give us a favorable reception. When I was in school, uh, there were people involved in what you call the church growth movement. And these guys had planting a church down to a scientific art. It's kind of nifty uh, on a kind of human level. What they do is they go out, let's say we want to have a church in Van Alstine. So they had, they, it was all worked out. They'd done this all over the country. and There was, was scientific data that proved exactly how this would work. First thing you do is you, you, you basically send out a survey, a mass mailing survey, and you ask everybody, what would you like in a church? What would you like to hear in a church? What kind of place would you like a church to be? And then they send, you get your results back in and you, and you tabulate them and you tally it up and you work it out. And, and based on how many they sent out, they knew how many basically they'd get back in most circumstances. And they knew from there they could make a certain number of phone calls and they could fashion the church kind of according to the greatest common denominator. And they knew that there would be a certain percentage of the people who returned the survey who would show up on the first Sunday. And they knew that from that group uh, there would be a certain percentage who would join the church. And so, based on the number of surveys that you sent out to begin with, they could tell you how many members you'd have in your church. Isn't that great? No, it's not great. It's terrible. Third thing. This is the toughest one of all. Verses 8 and 9. Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, un preached unto you, let him be accursed. He says it twice. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be 
accursed. These men who come with a different gospel are not to be embraced. They're not even to be tolerated. Paul says they're troublers of the church. Troublers. It's an interesting word, isn't it? He says, let them be accursed. Now, just as the presence of a multitude of Gospels was current with the New Testament, and it's continued on throughout history, obviously down to our own time, <coughs> so also the presence of false teachers was, is not a new phenomenon today. It wasn't even a new phenomenon at the time of Paul. John says again in 1 John 4, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they be of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And then there's this interesting one in, in 2 Peter, where he references the time of the Old Testament to compare it to the time of the New Testament. He says, Peter says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily, secretly, secretly, shall bring in damnable heresies and bring upon themselves swift destruction. So, there were false prophets in the time of Israel in the Old Covenant. There were false prophets in the time of the Apostles. And, Jesus says, there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible they shall deceive the very elect. False teachers today. False prophets today. All throughout the history of the people of God from the very beginning. What's new today, I suppose, it may not be that new, but What's new today in terms of its overwhelming popularity is the response to this situation. You see, in the time of the New Testament, here's how they responded. They said that these men who brought another gospel were troublers of the church. They called them anti-Christs, those who were against Christ. They said that these men would subvert your souls. They called them deceivers. They said that if you listen to these men, they will overthrow your faith. That was the New Testament time. Today, we say that we must have toleration. We must love everybody and accept everybody. We certainly mustn't criticize anything that anyone believes or teaches. In fact, you can't even raise this issue in many churches or even among many professing Christians. There are some, there are some who even teach that you should go to any and join, go to and join any local, quote, Bible-believing church, even if what they teach if their theology, if their practice is inconsistent with the Word of God. Because, because your job isn't to judge these people. Your job is to minister among them. I think one part of the problem today is that we can accept that these people exist. Sure, they're out there. But when we look at the description of them and when we look at the severe things that are said about them, I mean, surely these must be pretty obvious bad guys. I mean, it must be pretty clear to, to anybody who, who, who looks at them that, that these guys are, are, are really wicked. And so... If we go into a church and the pastor seems like a nice guy and the place seems like it's got kind of nice people in it and we may have a few problems here and there, we don't assess it with this criteria. We don't look at it in this light. 
Now, of course, in some cases, that's true. There are those false teachers whose ungodly lives prove the wickedness of their doctrine. I mean, especially as we think on the very fringes of religion, when we get into the cults, what we call the cults, uh, um, strange things. I mean, whether it's Jim Jones in Guyana or something of that nature. I mean, we can we can look at these very clearly, and we can see from the wickedness of their lives. Well, it's quite obvious. At least it's obvious to us. But you know, in many cases, it's not so obvious. In many cases, you can't use what you can see of a person's life as the test of the validity of their doctrine. For this reason, when a wolf puts on sheep's clothing to go into the sheepfold and eat the sheep, what does he look like? He looks like a sheep. That's why he does it. It'd be obvious otherwise, right? The Bible says if it were possible, they would deceive the very elect. They creep in unawares. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no surprise, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. Now, this is an astonishing verse, isn't it? You mean to say that the ministers of Satan would be transformed by appearance into ministers of righteousness? Well, that's astonishing. Why would Satan want to have somebody come in who would tell you that good works were important or that you should walk with God? Because the serpent was the most subtle of all the beasts, wasn't he? He doesn't have to come with a headlong assault. He doesn't have to smash in the door. There are plenty of people who will invite him in, and they won't even know what they're doing. They don't necessarily look like villains. Sometimes they look like godly, upright, respectable men. Great teachers. With great ministries. Doing such good for the kingdom. They're so pious. They love Jesus so much. They might even be on radio or on TV, though we can pretty much say if they're on TV that kind of guarantees what they are. They might have a large following. They might run a large, well-respected organization. They might even have many sincere Christians following them and involved in what they're doing. So if you just go in by that test, you're going to be deceived. And the most difficult part of this verse, the most astonishing part and the most cross or contrary to what we're used to today is that double curse in verses 8 and 9. Paul says about these men that pervert the gospel, let them be accursed. The Greek word is anathema, which I'm sure you've all heard. It is a religious word. It comes from the Old Testament. And it means to be devoted to destruction by God. If you remember uh, when Israel was taking the land of the Canaanites, there were certain situations in which God would put, as it says there, the ban. He'd put the ban on something. Uh, they, they had to destroy it to the uttermost. 
And in fact, there were a few cases in which God had put the ban, for example, on not only all the people, but on all the cattle and all the houses and this sort of thing. And the Israelites went in and killed the people and kept the cattle. Why waste the good cattle? And God judged them for that because those things were devoted to destruction. The anathema of the Old Testament is a type, a picture of hell. It's a picture of God's total consuming wrath against that which he hates. And so, if I may put it in our vernacular, what Paul says here is let them be damned forever. So how serious an issue is this? I mean, does it really matter what church you go to? Does it really matter whose instruction you're under? I mean, does it really matter if they aren't quite right on the gospel? Because, after all, he's a really nice man. What do you think Paul would say? Modern evangelicalism, if what we have considered in these last three messages is true, about the nature of the gospel, the nature of saving faith, the nature of Christian discipleship as taught out of the scriptures. If those things are true, I submit to you that modern evangelicalism is in terminal condition. It's not going to be resuscitated. Do you remember when we first started last week? I started the sermon with a story story about a remember John our, our, our drug addict who uh, his life was falling apart and he happened to make it into church on Sunday morning and he heard somebody up there that was just like him and, and, and he was talking about all the things Jesus had done for him and, 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 and how Jesus could change his life I'm sure you remember, and so he, he gets to the appeal, and uh, John goes down, and he invites Jesus into his heart, and he's patted on the back, and, and he wants to have this change like you remember it, I'm sure. See, that message is not a joke. Well, I mean, we wish it was a joke. That message is common to many, many, many evangelical pulpits. But if what we considered is true, there's a very serious situation there. The modern evangelical gospel message omits, alters, even denies parts of the New Testament gospel. It barely identifies Christ in many cases as, as anything more than some kind of name, like some kind of talisman, some kind of uh, trinket that you would uh, call on for salvation without even identifying who Christ is. In many cases, Christ's kingly office is openly denied. It is openly denied that Christ's kingly office is any part of the gospel of salvation. We know this priestly office has been hopelessly altered to the point where Jesus is a, is a pathetic Savior standing at the door, knocking, hoping that you'll use your free will to let Him in, wishing He could save you. Not the powerful, perfect Savior who fully pays the penalty for sin and is mightily raised from the dead to declare his victory over the grave. You know, this may not seem as dramatic as some of the heresies that we considered a few minutes ago, but I'm not sure that it's, it's not because we're just used to it. I mean, can you actually imagine the Apostle Paul countenancing or approving of a gospel that openly denied that Jesus was the king in salvation? Do you think they would have regarded as a gospel message a proclamation which omitted or denied 
Christ's major offices or didn't even give you enough information to know who this Jesus was other than anything but a name? And if that is the regular case with a ministry, what do we think Paul would say of it? And what about this situation with saving faith? Considered that last Sunday evening. How that the modern gospel has turned faith, which was knowledge, assent, and trust in Christ as he's offered in the gospel, receiving him as, as, as a priest and a king and a prophet, a spiritual action inside of you. How the modern gospel has turned the exercise of faith into a formula. Into a sinner's prayer, as they call it. We saw fairly conclusively last week that that is totally destructive of the true nature of faith. I'm going to say something that may shock someone. That's okay. There's not one single person in the whole history of the Christian church that has ever been saved by inviting Jesus into his heart. Amen. Not one. Because that's not the biblical gospel. That is not the biblical definition of saving faith. Now, I don't mean to say that no one has ever been saved in the context of that situation. Because many people, because God is gracious, uh, a, a person uh, who has had the revelation of Christ and the preaching of the gospel, his heart, he may have knowledge, assent, and trust in the Christ of that gospel, and has the exercise of saving faith, and he is justified even though it may be within a context where someone has given him some kind of instruction to invite Jesus into his heart. I mean, people have been saved in completely liberal churches where there is no gospel preaching at all, simply because, for some bizarre reason, they keep reading the Bible out loud during the services. And if you're not careful, if you get through enough of it, God may just reach out and save somebody in there. But it wasn't because of the ministry of that organization, nor does it endorse or countenance what they're doing. And, more seriously, when you turn saving faith into a mechanical exercise or formula that anyone can repeat, what you do is multiply false conversions by the thousands and the millions. False views of discipleship. Where do we start? The worst manifestation, if you make the mistake of ever turning on a TV preacher, the health and wealth gospel. Name it and claim it, as they say. If you don't have it, it's because you don't have faith. If you want to be rich, you just need to claim the promise and send some money to yours truly. That's always part of the deal, somehow. Sometimes it's not as obvious as that. Some of the Baptist uh, churches down in Dallas that uh, I was familiar with during my time at Criswell College were overrun with what I would call the man with the gold ring syndrome. Every deacon in the church was a man of wealth or prominence in the community. It didn't matter if he was godly. In fact, he could reek of ungodliness. He could smell of the love of money. But that actually qualified him for the position. You know what I'm talking about when I say the man in the gold, with the gold ring. It's, it's, in, uh, it's in James, uh, where he says, you know, you have this problem, a, a, a rich man comes in, the man with the gold ring, and you give him the chief seat in the church. 
He says, forget that. You should put him at the back and put the poor guy up there. But the reason you do that is because you're obsessed with people who have money. You're obsessed with people of notoriety, of acclaim, of power. Who would deny that the evangelical church in this country is consumed with a kind of hero-worshipping of any so-called famous person, athlete, rich man, who one day decides he's going to profess the gospel because there are no consequences and it doesn't result in a change of life. And within moments, they'll have him plastered all over their billboards and appearing as a, as a spokesman for the gospel. For their gospel, not my gospel. These views are fairly obvious, almost vulgar. They completely lack any concept of the self-denial, the suffering that we talked about this morning. They can only be thought of as perversions. But there's actually something a little more insidious. And it's something that I was trying to get after this morning. You might have picked up on it. It's this appeal that is used to tell people that if they want success in life, if they want things to work out at home, if they want things to work out on the job, if they want things to work out with their health or marriage or whatever, you need to adopt the Bible. Because the Bible, after all, is a manual for practical living. And, it, and it's, it's got these laws in it that are kind of like the law of gravity. You know, everybody's subject to the law of gravity. I mean, you know, we can't, we're not going to float, right? I mean, we're stuck here, sticking on the ground. It's a universal principle. And, and after all, the Bible is full of universal principles that lead to success in life. If you want success on the job, you want to be thought of as a good employee, you want promotion, why well, read the Proverbs. If you want to restore your home life and take care of your marriage and family, why, why turn to these lessons in Ephesians. If you're suffering from sickness, you want to keep your health good, why there's a whole section on dietary law back here in Leviticus. And we know that the Jews were the healthiest of all the ancient people. Whatever your problem is, the Bible will give you success. You can overcome. In fact, these laws are so universal, you may not even have to become a Christian if you just kind of get with the program. Everything will be great. Now, there's two things about this. First of all, of course it has a germ of truth to it. Uh, no one's going to deny that. I'm not going to deny that. There's, a, there's an essential element of truth to it. And that's why it has the, the legitimate appearance that it has. The problem is, is that it assumes that everybody in the whole world is a godly person who loves righteousness. Because as we saw this morning, <laughs> you may implement your biblical principles... And you may find out that the man you work for hates God. You may find out that the man you work for is less interested in having a dedicated employee if it means that you're going to come with the Jesus Christ of the Gospel. You see, you may find that he's more interested in somebody who will be a sorry employee, but who will buttress him in his ungodliness. You may find out that when you implement the principles of God in your home life, that there may be people in your home that aren't Christians. And they may not like it. See, it's more than that, of course. 
lesson of the Scriptures we saw this morning is the more righteous you are, the more you suffer. Christ, perfectly righteous, and He suffered more than anyone ever has or will in history. And the more that we are like Him, the more we will find the opposition of the world and of the flesh and of Satan turned against us. The more that we will learn what it means to have to forsake your family and your possessions and your own life to be His disciple. And I would submit to you that to hold out the gospel, some kind of gospel, as being a success in life session is no different and attracts a no different group of people than those who follow Jesus because He made bread. And as soon as the going got tough, they went away. We need to know, we need to embrace the truth of the Gospel. We need to get these, this message, these facts, these things that we've been talking about for the last four sessions now, we need to get these things into us to where we understand them concretely and personally. And so we can see it and comprehend it and see when it's being denied or being twisted or being abused. But what about this situation when we encounter those who would twist or pervert the gospel. And especially in this regard, uh, the Bible especially is severe on what you might call the ringleaders. It's the teachers. There's a recognition that people, the kind of average man, may be confused or, or deceived and, and, and he needs to be instructed and helped. And of course we should try to reach everyone with instruction. But there are those who are the ringleaders who are teaching and, and, and endorsing and propagating these, these things. And to those, it is absolutely crucial, according to Paul, that we do not grant them some kind of religious validity. That we don't endorse them. We don't patronize them. We don't sit under their teachings. We don't acknowledge them. We don't stay there because we're being blessed by some of his teachings. Even though we already know that, that this man is, is twisting the gospel as we compare it with scripture. There's this astonishing place in Second John where he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your home, neither speak to greet him. For he that speaks to greet him is a partaker of his evil deeds. Now, this doesn't primarily mean saying, Hi, you know, Alan on the street. What this means is, these men were like a... Uh, Teachers then, many of them were traveling just as the apostles were. And a lot of the false teachers and false prophets and, and false Christs traveled as well. And of course, as they came to a new area, they would be received into a person's home. And, and, and there would be a, 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 a Christian acknowledgement and reception of them in the faith. It, it, something along the lines, perhaps, of the, of the, uh, uh, the kiss of charity that's talked about in the, in the New Testament. So, he says if these teachers come and they don't bring the right doctrine, not only don't admit them into your church, don't do anything that would lend the countenance of you who have embraced the true gospel to them. Because if you do that, and he's deceiving people, you're a participant because you just endorsed him. You need to be a Berean. You need to try or test the spirits whether they be of God. Just because someone seems holy or nice isn't enough. Just because someone uses the scriptures isn't enough. We've got to have this test and we've got to assign the apostolic consequences when the test has failed. If I or an angel from heaven bring any other gospel, let him be accursed. Let's pray.
Our Father, we know that Paul was an inspired apostle. All that he wrote is true. We know that he wrote as one who was passionate for your gospel. As one who embraced your gospel and treasured your gospel and knew your gospel as the only way of salvation, the only hope. We know that he wrote as a man who saw that the altering or perversion of a gospel, of your gospel, led to the destruction of souls. And so inflamed with passion, with love for the truth, he would even call out a curse upon those who would deny or pervert or alter your gospel. We pray, Lord, that you would give us that knowledge of the truth. We pray that you would give us that love of the truth. For in the love of the truth is the love of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would make us passionate about your truth. That we would see false doctrine not as a mistake or an error, but as the sinful rebellion that it is. Men crafting a gospel so that they might have a Christ of their own imaginations rather than the Christ revealed in your word. This is a difficult teaching for our generation. And we pray that you would give us the ability to apply it also with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. That above all things, we would seek to minister your truth that your people might be saved. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.